Yo, you get parkour, rock climbing, and surfing. More. Okay, hiking, camping, and date nights. Even more. Picnics, road trips, and suntans. More, more, more. The new Mercedes-Benz GLB, designed for those who want more. More space with seven seats. More connectivity with MBUX. More room for life. A life of more possibilities awaits. Test drive the new Mercedes-Benz GLB today. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome to MSP. My name is Rich Bradbury. Streaming docudrama and algorithmic recommendation sensation, The Social Dilemma, about the dangers that social media companies pose to democracy and freedom, looks set to become this year's The Great Hack, the 2019 documentary that outlined, you guessed it, the dangers that social media companies pose to democracy and freedom. But 2020 is a radically different place to 2019. The future-proof, Matt Armitage asks... Can the film lead to real change? Matt, you're a little bit behind the curve with this one. Everyone else was talking about The Social Dilemma like a week ago. Hey, Rich. Well, yeah, it took me a a couple of weeks to watch the movie, ironically, and in part because I just took on a new job looking after a brand's social media posts. So I find myself kind of in both camps this week. Uh, I'm part of the problem, but hopefully at least here we can talk about some of the solutions. You know, today is kind of exciting because it's a bit like a greatest hits edition of Matt's Plained. In fact, you know, I could just have asked you to edit different bits of old shows together uh, to make this and taken the week off. But, you know, I'm a professional and I think I've demonstrated that I have no problems with repeating myself. So, you know, here we are. Uh, A lot of people have been messaging me over the past couple of weeks saying, you know, have you watched The Social Dilemma? And that tells me, you know, two things. It shows that people are engaged, they're interested in the topic of social media and how it's shaping and manipulating our world. And it also shows how many of my friends and family don't listen to this show because I've been talking about this since 2017 at the very least. But, you know, like most things in this digital post-truth era, it's not real until it's on TV or social media is recommending it to you. Now, you must see the irony in that, uh, that a documentary about the dangers of social media has become a, a social media trending topic. Of course, absolutely. You know, I, I'll point out now, you, you don't need to have watched the film to listen to this show. Um, and as for spoilers, well, the entire history of Matt Splained is a spoiler for The Social Dilemma. Uh, plus, you know, you already know the ending because you're probably listening to this on a smartphone, on a tablet or a computer the ending is you. And for that matter, so is the starting point. But going back to that irony point, that irony is central to the film itself. It's being hosted on Netflix. Netflix has one of the most powerful AI recommendations engines in the business. It has the power to shape 
an influence and if they wanted to manipulate what we see and hear, which of course I'm in no way suggesting that they are trying to do, but it's that fundamental paradox. It's a movie about the dangers of algorithms and social media, but it relies on algorithms and social media to promote it. And I don't think that's an irony that escaped anyone involved in the movie. In fact, you know, it's actually central to it. Right. And would it be fair to say that you didn't learn anything from watching it? Oh, not at all. I mean, it's such an incredible group of people that they assembled for the documentary part. You know, Jaron Lanier, who they credit as being the father of virtual reality, but in reality is somebody uh, uh, who's been involved with an enormous number of tech advances over the last sort of 30 to 40 years. Uh, Shazana uh, Zuboff, the author of The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Tristan Harris, the co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology and uh, a former design ethicist at uh, Google. Roger McNamee, the activist venture capitalist, and a lot of former senior staff from Apple, Google, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. So even if you have heard the majority of these people's views before, it's still a great opportunity to see how those opinions compare and contrast from person to person. Because even though they have roughly the same position on a lot of these issues, how they arrive at those uh, positions and the context that they frame them in are actually quite different. I mean, I, I found it really interesting, especially in terms of the different ways that they frame their arguments. Yeah. Were there any um, standout moments, like aha moments for you? Yeah, when Cathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Math Destruction, um, a, a book that been on my reading list for uh, far too long already, but I get put off by that math word, uh, when she says that uh, algorithms are opinions embedded in code. That's a really cool way of looking at them. You know, we often come back to this idea on the show of how smart technology is, but it's actually pretty dumb. You know, it tends to do one thing well and it does everything else, not at all. So saying that it's an opinion embedded in code is really descriptive because an algorithm is effectively a statement. It may be capable of learning, but only within the context of that original statement. You know, we've all had discussions and arguments with people where the opinions don't connect or overlap. And that's essentially what algorithms are. They'll defend their position to the end, but they can't broaden it to other subjects. You know, they're designed to be a one-trick pony. Uh, other things, you know, reminding me to think of social media as an attention extraction model. Uh, I should probably get that graffitoed on my wall. Uh, that was from Tristan Harris. But I think the statement that resonated with me the most was from Roger McNamee, the venture capitalist that algorithms know everything about us, but we know nothing about them. And that's by design. It's systemic. As we've said on the show before, very few people at any of the big tech companies truly understand the algorithms that form the backbone of their services. The film also touches on the uh, notion of supercomputers and the idea of centralised AI. Well, yeah, that's something I haven't really talked about much on the show, which is definitely an oversight. You know, when we talk about the Facebook algorithm or the YouTube algorithm, we assume that it's one vast machine. But it isn't. It's thousands of individual scripts. Some of them are very small. Some of them are very specific. Others qualify for that term of machine intelligence. Uh, different scripts are operating the groups and pages and marketplaces as well as your newsfeed. So we're interacting with multiple scripts 
every day. And just as the authors of those scripts, especially the, the, the scripts that do have that ability to learn, only have a rough idea of what those algorithms will do, um, what happens when they intersect is also often an unknown factor. So those systems that underpin social media companies are not the singular entity that we imagine them to be. Similar to the uh, Microsoft AI that learned to be racist within a few hours of being turned loose. Yeah, I mean, that was a machine program that used Reddit as a data set. So as far as it was concerned, inflammatory statements were just normal uh, because it isn't human. It's not making a judgment. It's simply looking at that data set and deciding from that information that this is the way people communicate. Uh, but that brings us back to the bigger problem. I think it's uh, something that uh, Catherine O'Neill, uh, again in the film, points out that the algorithm decides if something is true in a very simple way by you clicking on it. It doesn't care about that sense of objective truth. It only cares about fulfilling its task, which in most instances is to grab your attention. And we can get stuck inside that process. You know, an alternate reality is created around that click, that particular choice. You've clicked it. Therefore, as far as the machine's concerned, it's true. So the machine serves you up more truths like the one that you just verified. And it's a very dangerous system because it requires no objective truth. The machine gives you affirmation, but it requires you to give it affirmation too. And uh, uh, is this why we end up down rabbit holes? Well, yeah, the system probably wasn't designed to send you to, you know, the extreme edges of content generation, but it is designed to keep you hooked. I think someone in the film makes the point that the only other industry that talks about its customer base as users is the illegal drugs trade. Yeah. So once it has you on that hook, it has to keep reinforcing it. It has to give you more of what it is that you crave. And human nature being what it is, I think we mentioned this on the show a couple of weeks ago, we look ever further for hidden truths and uh, exposés, and we quickly end up a long way away down into that, that deep, dark hole of conspiracies. And it goes back to the idea we talked about last week, that when it comes to social media and, that, uh, and the supposedly free tech services, we're not the customers. Yeah, as I mentioned, you know, we're users. So I think Tristan Harris frames it nicely. How do you wake up from the matrix when you don't even know you're in the matrix? Uh, digital technology is quite different from anything we've known before because it's largely invisible. We don't really know how anything in this digital world actually works. But when you get served a, a kitten video, you think, well, you know, it's benign. It's just a fun action. You don't see the complexity or the scale of the operation that has decided that this is actually the perfect time for that video to appear on your screen because it's not random. If you open the app at a different time of day, you'll get a different recommendation. Uh, just to give you a, a personal example, you know, we talk about different people seeing different versions of the sites they visit or doing a Google search and getting a different set of search results. I was watching The Social Dilemma on two different iPads. There's no reason to ask why. I'm a quantum being. Um, but <laughs> I, I may have done, both, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, both were under the same Apple account. They were using the same Netflix account. The iPads were running the same versions of the operating system and the same versions of the app. But each gave me different sets of recommendations and feature posts because the way I use each of those devices is very different. 
if there's so much variation just in terms of framing what the algorithm thinks I want, imagine how wide that gap becomes when you go from person to person. And then you look at the scale across 2 billion users. So the idea of consensus and shared information and values kind of disappears in favour of this idea of highlighting and exploiting the differences. When we come back, do social media and the companies behind its services pose an existential threat to our health and our freedom? You're listening to BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Be free-minded. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. This is Matt Splained. You've left us with um, quite a deep, dark hole to explore in part two. The social dilemma frames social media as an existential threat to our lives. Is that fear-mongering and uh, clickbaiting? Well, I'd love to say yes. You know, I think most of the people that the film speaks to are unified in their belief that this is a fundamental threat. But in the past, Matt, you've argued that this is a generational blip, that at some point it'll normalise. Yeah, I think it will, but not in the sense that the technology is going to slow down. You know, repeating myself again, but we've seen this exponential acceleration of digital technology and the things that it can do. I think in the film they refer to it as a simultaneous utopia and dystopia. Again, topics that we've covered on on Matt's plane. So the idea of these services, these abilities they represent, are opening up possibilities, they're providing information, and at the same time, and often the same tools, are also providing methods of surveillance and control. So those technology jumps are not going to slow down. It has to come from us saying okay, we need to take a break here and have a think about this and and what it's doing. But surely the issue here is that these companies don't want us to slow things down or, or, or take that control away from them. Well, last week I was speaking to Charles Landry, who is the author of uh, several books, including The Creative City and The Digitized City. He's the founder of the Creative Bureaucracy Festival, uh, an international forum on creative governance, which uh, took place, of course, online this week. And we were discussing the role that lawmakers have to play in this process. If we want data to be open, if we want our privacy rights to be protected, if we want technology to uphold our digital freedoms, then we have to have those rights guaranteed in law. Uh, If you want to hear more from that conversation, you can hear it on a podcast called The City Maker in all the usual uh, podcasty places. But at the moment, the, the little digital rights legislation that most countries have enacted provides more guarantees to the service providers than it does to the users. The EU's GDPR, the General Data Protection, uh, whatever the R stands for, was a step in the right direction, but a lot of it was essentially obsolete by the time it passed. What is increasingly clear is that the technology companies cannot self-regulate and serve our needs because those goals are fundamentally incompatible. In fact, to continue being as financially successful as they are, the tech companies have to be able to sidestep the regulations that govern TV, radio and other forms of traditional media. Because we often forget traditional media also has a profit incentive. But that incentive is usually constrained for the public good. And I think we need to see similar mechanisms to redress that power balance with social media and digital content delivery. Yeah, we heard a bit of an argument uh, in terms of 
what could we do? What about that argument that we could use better and more technology to police social media? I think uh, Zuckerberg talked about we need to build better AI to police what was happening over there. Well, yeah, it goes back to that uh, quote I mentioned earlier about algorithms being coded opinions. They can't independently tell what the truth is. We have to tell them what the truth is. That's where they start from. So certainly with the technology we have, we can't expect machines to be a solution to fake news. And as we've seen, those systems often help to propagate fake news rather than limit it. Uh, In the film, I think someone makes the point that fake news spreads up to six times as quickly on Twitter as other kinds of content. The primary concern with content sharing is popularity. And as we've seen with elections and as we've seen with these growing culture wars, somebody can come in and start a page or a profile. The content doesn't have to be fake. It doesn't have to be extreme. But if you have money, you can then promote that page to people who have overlapping interests. But you can also market it to people who have more extremist or conspiracy-minded versions of the type of content you're displaying. And then you can start to stoke those narratives and shape that debate by bringing that demographic into your own network. Do you think we fundamentally misunderstand what this technology is? I think we misunderstand a lot of technology, not just social media. There was uh, a great piece in The Atlantic a couple of weeks ago about the California and Oregon fires and our smartphones' inability to capture them. We assume that digital cameras are just a digital version of film cameras, but they're not. Uh, In a film camera, you're recording an image onto film through a chemical process. You know, a version of the image the lens sees is essentially burned or etched onto the negative. A digital camera is basically software. The image the lens sees is captured as ones and zeros, and software processes it into the image that we see. So digital cameras struggle to to capture the kind of apocalyptic, fire-filled images we've seen in the US over recent months. They washed the picture out because the software was never told that our world could be red or orange. You know, the, the white balance fails because there's no white in the scene for it to calibrate against. But this isn't something that's wrong with the software. It's something that's wrong with our perception of what a digital camera is. And the same thing, that same kind of truth, holds for social media as well. As Jaron Lanier notes in the film, there's a generation whose interactions are built on false premises and relationships. Their digital communications and interactions with each other are based around companies that are monetizing those conversations. So these conversations become transactions and there's a layer of manipulation and essentially deceit involved in achieving that. And you can see that in this growing trust deficit that we see with the first digital generations and the growing body of evidence that suggests that incidences of depression, anxiety and self-harm arising amongst teens and preteens. Do you think we can rebuild that trust or or build it for a generation that has never experienced it? That's something I touched on with Charles Landry. Uh, He thinks we can through things like community and project initiatives. Uh, These are generations that are motivated perhaps by fear, but to be socially active, uh, they engage with politics, the environment, equality. 
I think it might be harder. As the social dilemma also mentions, you know, we see algorithms reinforcing tribalism, reinforcing partisanship. So while we may be building trust within groups, we're potentially offsetting that with mistrust of anyone outside that group. And that brings us back to that central idea of an existential danger, because we're not seeking consensus. We can't talk to people with opposing opinions, because the nature of those digital environments is that they push us towards those outer edges. And as I mentioned at the end of the first part of the show, that centre ground for talking in consensus is disappearing. And with it, the understanding that it should be there, and indeed that it ever was there. Now, this might be uh, a, a bit of an apocalyptic question. But where is your sense that this could uh, end up? Well, in The Social Dilemma, it ranges from civil war to Jaron Lanier's fear that it will tear our societies down into small authoritarian factions. Now, I do share some of those fears. The current US election is scary because you're seeing democratic norms being trampled. And while there is outcry, it's not anywhere near as loud as you might expect it to be. There's a, a sense of numbness that comes along with not being able to decipher truth from lies. That sense of, oh, not another one. And then you just turn to another post or news item. But I think I'm actually more optimistic than most. I think the next decade or two will be very rocky. I think that's probably how long it will take before we settle on some kind of new consensus for how this new digital world works and who actually controls it. And, you know, I do hope that it will be us, as in the people and not corporations. But that battle is still largely to be fought, let alone won. The social dilemma seems to settle on the idea that the biggest problem with social media is, is the business model, which is something I know you've spoken about many times. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the movie talks about this a lot, but it doesn't really spend a lot of time looking at alternative methods of funding. And I was wondering if that's more as a result of editing on the part of the producers than the comments or opinions of the people at interviews, because I can't imagine it's something that they haven't thought about. Uh, from my point of view, one of the, the most interesting comments was an idea about taxing data. You know, we tax, yeah, we tax a lot of goods on the basis of public health and harm. Cigarettes and alcohol are obvious examples. So there's potential to, to tax the collection of data, which would incentivize companies to be much more targeted, whereas right now we see them scoop up as much information as they possibly can because they have very few constraints. Uh, one of the points that's brought up in the movie is that in countries like Myanmar, Facebook essentially is the internet. So Jaron Lanier makes the point that there have to be financial incentives to make these hugely powerful and rich companies change direction. There have to be rewards, but probably tied to the stick of legislation. Do you remember anybody suggesting that we pay for it? Well, like I said, it could be creative editing, but no, it, it didn't seem to be an option that was raised. And I understand how difficult it is to move people away from that idea of something being free. In terms of its value proposition, you know, we say how important all these services are to us, but... Are they important enough for us to pay for? Paying for it eliminates a lot of the uh, behavior on the part of the companies that creates this harm because 
Of course, they're motivated by returning profits to shareholders and investors. And plus, you know, they're competing with each other for market share. These aren't public services. They're commercial services. And that's something we tend to forget. We're not paying for them. So, you know, we tend to treat them like they're public resources. And that explains the temper tantrums when they hide our posts or suspend our accounts. But if you started screaming in a store or restaurant, you'd expect the staff or security to to come along and throw you out. With social media, the response is that they're curtailing our free speech and our right to be obnoxious in public. And and back to the the business model, would that reduce their profits? Well, Most likely, yes, Um, but it would probably also reduce their costs. Now, I'm not claiming to have done a cost-benefit analysis on this, but it does simplify what they do. They provide a service, we pay for the service. Mm. Right now, they provide a service to brands and agencies, and they milk us for the thing that they sell. That's like choosing a new pair of jeans and asking Levi's to figure out a way to get paid for giving them to you. Right. So... As I think Tristan Harris points out in the movie, when you aren't paying for the product, you are the product. So any attempt at reining the social media companies in is going to affect their bottom line, which is why we need to make it clear to lawmakers which version of the future we want them to legislate for. So look at that uh, data taxation example. At some point, all the expense and complexity of modelling our behaviour and allowing companies to access those models might become prohibitive in the face of levies, taxes on that information. Mm. So why not go back to a tried and trusted model? Sell us your service, protect our interests, and forget about having to create all of that nudging and those elements of control. For public representatives, you know, hitting them in the wallet is the obvious move. But the first thing we have to do is re-establish where the power lies in our relationship with technology. Because until we have that, we're always just going to be users. You have been listening to Matt Splained, MSP here on BFM 89.9, the business station. If you missed any part of the show, don't forget you can download the podcast wherever you normally get your podcast from. I'm Rich Bradbury for BFM 89.9, the business station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.